the CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, well, today you're getting me. I'm here today to talk a little bit about a program that I created um, when I was at a, uh, a previous system and have recreated at my current system, and it's a program for helping providers. We're going to talk a little bit about why I created this program, the components of it, what worked and what didn't, some of the obstacles I ran into, and we'll touch into the resources required. This episode is going to be fairly tactical. Uh, I'm currently I'm studying for my informatics boards, and I'm sure those Markov models I'm studying are going to be important in some academic setting, but not necessarily really practical for the, for the real world. This episode is going to get more into some of the operational aspects of what we do as CMIOs, some of the program creation, and if you're an associate CMIO or a medical informaticist, I think you will um, see a little bit about what uh, I've asked some of our people to do to help our providers. So uh, let's start with how I, how I got into this. Um, I began my journey actually on the analytics side. I was very interested in all the data that we were putting into the electronic health record and I wanted to get some of it out and be able to help drive business decisions and clinical decisions. Well, one of the items I asked for just out of curiosity was what time of day do our primary care doctors close their charts? So these aren't people who are generally on call late at night and it should be fairly uniform. We had a lot of them, so we should get a pretty good sample of what it would look like. And it turns out that over 50% of our providers were in the chart after 8 p.m. And at first our leadership was saying, oh, well, that's just their, their habit. They like to do that. Um, no, that's, that's actually not the case. They, they didn't want to be in the chart at that hour. They needed to be because our system had a penalty, a financial penalty for failing to close the charts. And so the doctors were trying to work their in-basket during the day knowing that they could do their charts uh, later at night. And I just felt the need to do something. I felt that my colleagues were seriously struggling and it bothered me. So. I set out to create this program. And so we assembled a team of clinical leaders. We had some project managers, some of the uh, IT trainers, the principal trainers, and uh, some educational specialists. We met weekly, and we just knew right off the beginning that we had to brand this initiative right. If we call this initiative the, we're going to stick our noses in your business and move your stuff around initiative, this was not going to work. So we came up with the home for dinner program and we just knew that that would resonate with both providers and staff. And uh, it really did. It, it's, it's been a very successful. So I encourage you, if you're building a program, make sure the name counts. Feel free to steal home for dinner. Um, I don't own it. I, I believe uh, we were one of the first programs in the country to, to develop it, although I know there are, there are a couple of these out there now. So we, um, we started with trying to identify what's the problem we're looking to solve. And at first we said the answer to that was, oh, providers don't know how to use the EMR. So that led us towards some conclusions of, well, all we have to do is figure out how to teach them how to use the, the EMR. And so our focus is on teaching. 
And in retrospect, that was the wrong answer, and, and we did pivot at some point. We, the problem we eventually worked on was that providers want a better practice experience. And that was a much better working concept for us, because that led us in different directions. Now it's, well, what can we do in the EMR from an informatics standpoint that makes the tool easier to use? And now we're talking about reducing clicks and looking at alerts. And then we got into, well, what tools are in the EMR that providers are not using? And you're looking now at dragon optimization and smart tool usage or whatever other tools are in your, in your EMR. The more difficult one was looking at workflows and the workflows that do are duplicate work effort or inefficient work. And these were some of the more difficult things that we tackled. I'll give you an example of one. Uh, we noticed a phenomenon that I call in-basket ping pong. If you've ever seen this, it's maddening. So I was following a, a provider in a clinic and just watching. I was watching their staff work at the time. Uh, a patient, the sister of the patient calls up and the secretary answers the phone and gets the information that uh, her brother wasn't feeling well and has a cold and, you know, asks the doc what to do. So the secretary sends an in-basket message to the doctor. The doctor's seeing some patients, so after a few patients gets to their in-basket and the doctor sees the message, writes back, well, what are the symptoms? Goes off to see their next patient. So the secretary gets back on the phone and calls the sister up, gets the symptoms, writes down the symptoms, and sends it back to the doctor. Doctor gets back to their in-basket eventually and says, yep, it's a cold. And go ahead and ask the sister what, what they've tried already. So sends that back to the secretary. Secretary gets on the phone and finds out that they've tried Claritin and sends that information back. And the doctor says, yeah, that's a good idea. Keep taking it. So the secretary is calling the sister back and finds out, well, that's not working. That's why I'm calling you. And so that information goes back to the doctor. And at that point, I raise the white flag, bang my head into the wall a couple times and say, stop the madness. I recommended to the secretary, hey, just, just let the nurse handle this call. And the nurse got on the phone, knew the patient well, knew the family, knew just what to say, and the issue was resolved in two minutes. They had a bad workflow in place on how to handle patient messages. And you'll find when you're in the practices all kinds of interesting workflows that are out there that uh, you can try to standardize some of these things through the practices or in the inpatient setting and you'll see that a lot of the stuff can go smoother. Um, these are definitely the hardest to fix. They will require the majority of your time but probably have the biggest return on your investment. I'll, I'll give you another example that has to do with rooming workflows. And so the question here is what information can the rooming medical assistant take care of so that the provider doesn't need to touch it? And in some places it's, hey, just get me the vitals, get in and get out of the room. And I understand why that workflow is there. That's designed so that the provider and the medical assistant aren't bumping into each other in the chart. Because most of our EMRs, from a safety standpoint, they only let one person in an area at a time so that someone's not changing something while someone else is working on that exact thing. But in other places, the medical assistant is, is trained to get detailed information so that the chart is well prepped for the provider when they walk into the room. And so just picture how the day is as a provider. If when you walked into the room, the medication list is correct, the last consult from the cardiology visit the patient had a few weeks ago, well, that's there. It's on the chart. You don't have to ask for it. And the review of systems has already started for you. And the agenda, the two key things that the patient wants to cover, well, that's already there and listed for you. 
that kind of environment, that doesn't happen by accident. It's going to take training and practice and communication and most importantly, trust. And I found that it has to be built one team at a time and it really requires a physician leader to guide these teams to develop these workflows. So let's talk a little bit about what are the components of the Home for Dinner program. And there's three main components. We focused on onboarding, continuing education, and rescue or, or retraining. And so I'll go into a little bit more detail on each of these. So for onboarding, at, at many places, the initial onboarding program is somewhere between four and six hours spent with a trainer, and then that's getting the provider to a place where they're considered uh, safe. They're in survival mode. They will then do on-the-job training. They'll be in front of patients kind of learning as they go or perhaps they have the phone number for the trainer and they can call them in between patients and say, hey, I'm stuck. How do I do that? Um, I really am encouraging us all to shoot for something better, that we should be training to a level of proficiency. The first patient of the day for the first for that new provider, that's not an experiment. For that patient, that's real. So our goal was to elevate the entire training program. And we started with, hey, let's just do some computer-based training. Um, our EMR vendor has some good videos. This is easy stuff, the basics of well, how do you log in? How do you find the basic information in the chart? Some screen navigation tips, the basics. I don't want our trainers spending the time on that. I want them to be elevating to a higher level of work. So let's get the provider to get some of the basic stuff done on their own. I also instituted a shadowing program where the new provider is going to shadow one of our experts. And so hopefully you have some experts in your, in your areas, whether that's inpatient or ambulatory, that a provider can shadow, and they're shadowing with a purpose. We actually would give them a checklist saying, we want you to look for these following things. Observe how the expert is using their notes. What note templates are they using? What smart tools are they reaching for? How are they searching the chart? How are they responding to in-basket messages? Are they using quick actions or macros or one push buttons that make things happen um, with multiple steps? These are all things that they're going to most likely have to build for themselves during the personalization part of onboarding, but they need to know what to build. And so giving them that exposure to an expert at first has been very valuable. If the provider is coming out of their, let's say, a residency program or from another, another hospital, and they already are very familiar with your brand of EMR, they still need to get some exposure here. I will allow them to uh, test out. Uh, when I say test, I mean in, in quotes here. They're, they're really just going to demonstrate, okay, I know how to use this EMR. I can log in. I can place orders. I can write notes and those kinds of things. They still need to understand some of the specifics and unique to your system, whether that's the version of the EMR that you're on or your clinical workflows that are just different in your system. And so that stuff still needs to be training. So no one is allowed to opt out of training or shadowing altogether, but I may dramatically, dramatically reduce the program for someone who's coming in as a fairly advanced user. 
the next phase is now sitting down with the trainer and this is the personalization phase and we were doing just one four to six hour training and trying to slam it all in and the providers were just overwhelmed their brains fried by the end they don't remember half of what you trained them and our trainers were kind of beat at the end of that process as well so we broke this down into half day sessions and between two and three depending upon what the provider is going to need and in this, these sessions, they're expected to be building out the things they're going to need. Their preference list needs to be customized to them. Their smart tools, their, their whatever the, the quick actions or macros or whatever it is they're building. Ideally, these are specialty specific and developed ahead of time so that if I'm working with a gastroenterologist, I know they're going to be seeing patients with Crohn's disease. Well, let's go ahead and make sure they've got the smart tools that are around for Crohn's disease. And so we went to our division chiefs ahead of time and say, hey, give us this information. What are providers that are new into your specialty going to need? And we would ideally do this um, well in advance of a new provider coming on board. We usually get a couple of months heads up that someone's coming in and we can build it out for that specialty. Um, by the way, I should mention that this doesn't necessarily apply to locums. Locums are an entirely different beast. The, now you're asking questions about how much training am I putting into someone who's only going to be staying a week or maybe they're staying for six months to a year and that's totally different answers on that. So this is really for pro providers I'm talking about today that we are investing in in the long term. So the other part of personalization has to do with um, the, the voice transcription uh, dictation systems. Uh, I've always used Dragon, but there certainly are others that are fantastic. We found that our trainers were not prepared to deal with this. They, they said, well, look, we're, we're part of IT, and we were told to train Epic, and we're just going to train Epic. Um, well, I came from Epic Systems, and we're just going to train on that particular module that we know. And anything that's outside of that, that, that's not our business. We don't do that. And so this took some work. We had to retrain our trainers a little bit with a different mindset. It's, no, you're not IT, you're operations. And I need you to train the workflows that the providers are going through, regardless of what tools they're using to complete that workflow. So if they need PowerScribe or Provation or Pax or Dragon or Emodal, whatever the tools that they are using to complete the workflow, that trainer needs to be proficient in it, proficient enough to teach it. So that was a little bit different for uh, our, our trainers. We had to train our trainers up. So then upon completion of training these workflows, we asked our trainers to run the providers through a proficiency test. And again, this is not a real test, not being graded. We're trying to find out where are the deficiencies? Where do we need to remedy the problems? And we would run them through some scenarios. So if it's a primary care doctor, we'd say, okay, patient walked in the office today, they have a sore throat, go ahead and take us through. This should be a quick 10 minute visit. Show us how you can quickly get through a real easy office visit. And now we're making sure that they know how to you know, open the chart, take a history, put that history and document it into the chart, place an order or two, put in some patient instructions and, and sign this thing and be done. So if they can't do that, well, then we would have a library of content where we can say, hey, you seem to be a little weak in this placing orders thing. So here's, here's go to the library, an intranet site that we had set up 
and we had videos, little two to five minute videos, some I got from the vendor, some I made myself on particular workflows. This is how you place an order in the most efficient manner possible and they could watch that on their own. We would also provide the office manager with a list of things that we saw, hey, the provider needs a little bit of work in these areas and they can kind of help encourage and monitor the provider to make sure that they are getting better in these, in these places. So training's not done then, that's just the basics. Now we want them to spend some time at the elbow support with an expert in their specialty that really knows the EMR workflows well. And these are usually provider informaticists, physician builders, associate CMIOs. Those are the titles you'll typically see. But I'm looking for them the first time the provider is seeing a patient is that they're going to have someone at their elbow until we're confident that, yeah, they got this. And you'll very quickly be able to determine this bird's going to fly the nest or nope, we need to make some adjustments. And so we have a very reduced schedule during this time. Um, the provider's scheduled to see about eight patients um, that may be three in the morning and maybe five in the afternoon. Um, if they're depending upon the cadence that we're picking them up on, and then we're just going to see how how they're how they're doing. And you have to have built in the reactive capacity to adjust the schedule on the fly. So if the provider isn't doing well, if they're struggling, if they're not familiar with the system as we would like, you may need to keep the at the elbow support there for longer than just one or two half sessions. If you're like most, most healthcare systems, you're running training with the bare bones minimum staff. And if your system is on a growth mode, if they're just determined to acquire every practice they can and they got 20% growth rates and the mission statement has been changed to be what the Borg says, which is you, um, resistance is futile, you're, you will be acquired, um, then you're gonna need more staff and that's a tough sell because these are not FTEs that generate revenue, but there is a return on investment from launching a provider correctly. And if you cut the training short, it's going to bite you a few months down the line when you get the phone call from the operations director going, oh my goodness, our provider is not meeting their productivity targets. What are you going to do about it? Well, <laughs> the opportunity to do something about it was before the bad habits got put in place in the beginning. So. It's a key feature that we will all struggle with, which is to have the resources we need to make sure the training gets done well. The uh, other parts that happen during onboarding, usually in-basket training cannot happen on the first day or so. We will have a playground environment where we can demonstrate some of our inpatient, uh, excuse me, some of our in-basket messages, uh, what to do when a patient writes in through the portal and how to do medication refills, but sometimes you really need that to be done in a live environment for e-prescribing to happen and electronic prescribing of controlled substances. Some of those things you just have to be in the live environment. So usually we don't have anything in the in-basket on day one. That's usually a day three to day five. There's usually enough stuff in the in-basket that we can start to tackle that training. And then finally, we are not done training even still. Somewhere in this between weeks two and four we're going to have either the provider informaticist or the trainer come back and 
kind of keep an eye on things and say, how, how did we do? What, now, that we've seen, now that we've seen the basics getting taken care of, what are some of the advanced things that the provider missed that we just want to reinforce? You know, we, gee, we see them typing the same sentence over and over again. Why has that not been made into a macro or a quick phrase? So those are the kinds of things that happen during um, our onboarding. I want to move into the next part of the Home for Dinner program, and that's the continuing education and optimization phase. This is the part that most of us get more excited about. And this is, you know, how do we make the current providers really fly at this thing? And you're always going to have upgrades where this will apply to, where that continuing education has to happen. And then there's the, okay, you're a couple years past go live. There's plenty of bad habits out there. How in the world are we going to fix these things? Um, part of what I think you're going to need to have is the operations team locked in on this program and excited to be a part of it as well as if this is an inpatient program you you need medical staff behind you as well because what you're hoping to do is to set some mandatory requirements for continuing education and most of the EMR vendors are now saying hey it's a minimum of four hours a year these can be done during um, department meetings this can be classroom training this could be at the elbow support there's a variety of ways of delivering it, and I would encourage you to deliver this continuing education through multiple channels. Simply taking a tip sheet and putting it on your intranet is not continuing education. We have to do better. So I've seen places develop these um, walk-in, uh, these drop-in hours in the physician lounge. Um, I've seen people going around on the floors or out to the clinics and having scheduled appointments with the providers. I do not believe in this just this rounding business where you go and you go up to the provider when they're in between patients and go, hey, you got any questions for me? And the provider's 20 minutes behind. And it's like, no, they want you to get out of their face. You need to have scheduled time with them that's protected that you can actually get stuff done. And so it's manpower intensive. I also believe in creating little videos and sending them out by email or a link uh, to the video that's stored on our intranet. Those have been very successful. Most of the vendors will have videos that you can just grab and, and post. Um, and then I've created some of my own content when I felt that the vendor's video just kind of touched on it, gave an introduction to the topic. That's kind of the hook. And then the actual step-by-step, -step, here's how you do it type stuff, I would usually make my own. Uh, I take a WebEx and just record it put it up on the on the intranet. Um, I believe that providers do like to stay inside their EMR if you can deliver that training in that uh, through something called the learning home dashboard fantastic if you can get the providers to go there you're better than I am um, I have found that I've needed to meet the providers where they are um, which is typically going out to them and meeting with them I do want to talk a little bit about these three-hour training sessions uh, in the EPIC world. They're called Thrive Sessions. I've taught some of these. I found them to be somewhat useful, and I'll put a little question mark on that. I think these sessions have limited impact, and that's because the providers don't have enough time to absorb and institute and build some of the things you're teaching. So I've had great feedback at the end of the course, everyone says, ah, oh, great job, and I've learned one or two things. But if you look six months later, I'm not sure we've moved the metrics significantly. I think people will walk out going, yep, Mark knows a lot about that EMR. 
but I'm not sure that they are implementing everything that they are hearing. So uh, I, there are systems that will take their providers off-site and keep them in a hotel for three days and do optimization work. That is a ton of resources required to do that. And so if your um, system is loaded, by all means, that sounds like a phenomenal plan. For the rest of us, it's probably a little uglier. To be honest with you, it's going to be these optimization teams that are going around. And typically what they'll do is we'll, we'll send in the trainer first. They'll follow the provider for an hour with the provider, maybe half an hour just watching the staff. Experienced trainers will pick up exactly what's going on in that pod or with that provider on the floor within that hour, hour and a half time. And then they're going to come back and meet with the team, and this will be then be a strategy session. And usually this team is the trainer. You have a physician builder or provider informaticist that's there. And if we're lucky enough, we'll have an, an actual build analyst that's there and the operational leader. It is essential to have the manager of the practice or the nurse manager for the floor uh, involved in this. And so then we devise the, the strategies and say, okay, the provider seems to be weak in this particular area. This is how we're going to attack that. And we would go ahead and move forth. Inevitably, it has always been the case that we found that there is some build that was not done for this provider during onboarding that needs to be done. Some of that is build the provider does, that's personalization. And some of it is build the provider informaticist does. And the data out there is clear. If you have a builder in your specialty, you're going to have higher provider satisfaction for those for that specialty. And that's because the things like the views that the provider needs when they're starting to see the patient, what information do they need right up front, that is going to be specialty specific. If you can have questionnaires built out that are going to patients ahead of time that then are linked to the visit. The provider can just pull in that information right into their note. The patient's already answered the questions ahead of time. That is incredibly valuable. Those have to be built, and these are things that are built by provider builders. Uh, an example that, that we did is uh, for cardiology, atrial fibrillation. The atrial fibrillation patients, the doctors are asking the same questions just about every time. How are you feeling? Are you having palpitations? Are you having chest pain? Are you able to exercise? If you're on an anticoagulant, um, are you having bleeding problems? You get, you get the idea. So those kinds of questions can be sent to the patient ahead of time through the portal, brought back in, and then entered into the, the note. And the provider now has basically the first part of their history of present illness done for them. So those things have to be, um, have to be done. Um, also, we're not just training on our EMR if there's a dictation tool that they're using or other IT related tools that they need to get the job done. Those have to be optimized as well. In an ideal world, these teams that are running around out there, and if you're a big enough system, you'll have a few of them working, one maybe inpatient, one ambulatory, um, or, or two depending upon the size of your system you would ideally have a project manager that's with you coordinating all this because um, these things can get ugly. You don't want your team to show up and find out that the uh, provider's on vacation or that the office manager's on vacation. This requires some coordination.
Um, last part I want to touch into, which is the, the rescue of the retraining. And this to me is the most rewarding and also challenging part of, of what I was doing when we ran this program. And that is helping the provider that's really struggling. And in, this typically comes about with operations saying, wow, this provider, they're not meeting their productivity uh, targets. They are not able to close their charts. They have staff they, that are unhappy and there's a high turnover rate with them. And, you know, we, we just don't have a good feeling that this provider is doing well. And so you, burnout has to be a concern with these providers and it's going to take a multidisciplinary approach usually to, to come in. In my experience, it's generally not EMR knowledge that's the deficit. It's usually other things, although the EMR part is a contributing factor. But there's going to be workflow problems. Provider confidence in delivering the visit is usually a big factor. Their leadership and delegation abilities are usually deficient, and they almost always have trust issues. I've also found that the personal issues will come out. Uh, this one woman I was working with was very upset, got very tearful when we started talking about how we could help her. And she said she had not been home to give her daughter a bath in six months. And she really was, you know, you know, very involved with her family life and wasn't able to be a part of it. And she was thinking about how to get out of medicine. And so th to me, that became the challenge as we were going to get this provider home to be with their family. Um, we, we set about the program. It typically requires a reduced workload for that provider for two to three weeks. We did a 25% reduction because we are in their business and we're coaching and mentoring during um, normal office hours. These are things that are typically done on the fly. So a full schedule, seeing a patient every 15 minutes um, is not going to be very effective. You can couple a mindfulness program to it. I'm personally not a big believer of saying, yeah, your life sucks and we're just going to make it look prettier. Um, however, having said that, I have found that providers that write down three things that they're grateful for a day definitely start to see light um, at the end of the tunnel faster than those who are really beaten down, downtrodden and not taking stock of what has working well for them, what are they grateful for. The day that they do make it home for dinner, um, that they take note of that and that they are grateful for that. Um, this is very much a one-on-one -on -one at the elbow support at a very slow pace. It absolutely requires having the operational leaders involved and visible. I can tell you about the time where we went into the clinic, started telling the medical assistant, hey, we want you to start doing these things to help optimize the provider. And the medical assistant said, I'm not doing this extra work. Oh, no, not for me. And that operational leader has to be there to step in and be in lockstep with you saying, yes, yes, you, this is our new program. This is how we're going to do it. If you don't have that and you have resistance from the, either the staff or the operational leaders, you'll get the rug pulled out from under you and you'll find your intervention uh, very, very difficult. I also found it very valuable to have a provider shadowing an expert and so they can get to feel for how a visit can go really smooth and really well. Have them watch how a provider walks in the room, shakes the hand, locks eyes, pays full attention for the first 30 seconds. Those kinds of things that just starts the visit off 
right and then how the flow of the visit works and how the providers using the EMR the positioning of that tool with the patient and the provider how it's not a distraction all of that stuff that has to be done and this really speaks to some of the patient experience points that happen if you haven't listened to our podcast um, with Dr. Stephen Beeson and the patient experience project that that he runs it is a phenomenal program um, listen to that podcast that we did and you'll pick up some tips on how important patient experience is in this and we have seen fantastic improvement in patient experience scores when we come in for these kinds of interventions typically a provider that's in this burnout phase their their patient engagement is not fantastic and you will see it improve with a good intervention so um, that's the the main points around around rescue so I, I want to wrap it up I, I we're getting a little bit uh, to the end of where I like to be so I want to thank you for listening to CMIL podcast I hope today you've learned a little bit about the home for dinner program some of the resources and requirements that uh, need to go into such a program and investing that time and effort into your providers has delivered a fantastic return on investment if you want to reach me you can find me on LinkedIn or I can be reached at email cmiopodcast at gmail.com or through our website cmiopodcast.com you can send us your ideas for shows guests you'd like to hear from general feedback or just to connect I look forward to bringing you our next episode